Welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is David Houle, who's going to talk to us about the best possible future. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Hey, welcome back to the Radical Brilliance Podcast. My guest today is David Houle, who is considered to be one of the most renowned experts on the future. Most of the people I've talked to about potential futures are very polarized. Either the world is coming to an end very soon, there's little we can do about it, uh, whether it's global warming or running out of water or killing off the bees so we don't have any food. It's a grim picture. The other picture that gets painted more, say, by Peter Demantis of the X Prize, is that the, the best is yet to come. We're going to create such incredible technology that will just make everything exponentially better. There's not much middle ground. And David Hall fills that middle ground. He has a very sophisticated, optimistic way of recognizing our challenges. He runs a lot of data. This is not just visionary. It's based upon uh, careful data analysis. He he is very aware of our challenges, but also very aware of our potential. This is a long conversation, very interesting, very in-depth. It leaves you prepared for the greatest challenges, but also optimistic and prepared for the, the, the only way that we can move forward, which is to evolve to another level of co collaboration and cooperation among human beings and another level of consciousness. So please enjoy this rich, deep conversation with David Hull. We recorded this at a meeting of the Transformational Leadership Council in San Diego in the summer of 2019. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hey there, David. How you doing? Hey, thank you so much. We are hanging out here in uh, somewhere in Southern California. I think it's San Bernardo, yeah, right? Near San Diego. And we are here today, but we're actually going to talk about the future. Yes. We're going to talk about... I'm excited. The, uh, and I think the future, from my perspective, the future has never been as hot a topic as it is today. I think, I think you referenced this, but it's certainly a lot, something a lot of people <laughs> reference that... You know, there's that Charles Dickens novel. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times. Exactly. And as right. we talk about the future, it's like the it's like the worst possible future awaits us, and the best possible future awaits us at the same time. That's exactly right. I think, I think the way the reason there's so much more concern about the future. Um, I've been a full time futurist for since 2005. It's 2019 now, so roughly mm. 14, 15 years. And I've always been future-oriented and read The Great Futurist. But when I wrote my first book, The Shift Age, that came out in 2007, one of the things that I wrote that is relative to that is I said 
the speed of change has accelerated. So it's not accelerating a linear line. The speed of change is now environmental. Mm. It's synaptic change in all aspects mm. of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So when it has accelerated that much, mm. um, uh, people say, gee, I want to know about the future. When I put up my first book in 2007, there were probably 10 to 15 really high-level, global-quality futurists, and now everybody's futurist, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a cash-in-a-bull thing because of that context. I remember there was something that you referenced at lunch today. I was, over, I was kind of eavesdropping on a conversation, and you were talking about something analogous to climate change, change where you said it starts gradual and then it's suddenly all at once. Yeah, that's a quote from one of my favorite uh, Hemingway novels oh. called The Sun Also Rises, and evidently one character said to the other character who had gone bankrupt, he said, so how does bankruptcy happen? And the other character said, gradually, then suddenly. Right. And when I, I heard that from somewhere, it came into me, and I said, I'm going to put that in my book about climate change yeah. because it's 2019. Yeah. Pretty much climate change is happening now. That's the silver lining. It's happening now, so we're in a fight-or-flight mode. Mm. But it really hasn't been except since you know, Al Gore 2005, uh, Inconvenient Truth. So it's been about 15 years that we think, we, humanity, thinks we've been experiencing gradually, but it's been documented um, to start around 1970. Yeah. So we're coming into a gradual experience because before that we couldn't see it. Well, even it was, prior to 1970, the, the causes were there. We no, but the, actually, the, the, it really is 1970 in the sense that, is that, and I've gone back and done this study, mm. you know, the age of denial is over, but deniers would always say, well, there's a cycle, it's going to go back yeah. down. So there's a cycle... Um, um, I forgot the name of the Russian. It's a Russian name cycle, and it charts all the ice ages back to, you know, pre-humanity. And in 1970, the global temperature came down, and it was widely acknowledged by the scientific community that that was the curve kicking in. Now it was going to go into cooling. So in 1970 and 71, the Earth started to cool, mm. and then the, you know, the anthropogenic pollution and population started kicking in. So literally, not only is it not cyclical, but humanity and its m massive presence on the planet has completely upturned a constant cycle that's gone on for tens of millions right, of years. Right. Let's go back to the Hemingway quote. I think okay. there's a lot to be milked from that. Okay? Sure. Um, and I seem to remember the sun... Also, also right. Rises was actually written in Paris, right? It was written in Paris. It yeah. was about Pamplona. Do you know where I, when, when I first went to Paris, do you know where I used to sleep? Where? Was uh, um, Shakespeare and Company. Oh, I yes. Sleep I love night. it. And the, yeah. the old man who ran that, yeah. what, a, what a gentle what a guy. I mean, the, you remember the, his name? <sighs> he was the guy who used to welcome me to there, yeah. And you yeah. used to get a little single bed among the books. And you, the really? Part, you're one... You're one he, I mean, he was very... You, you had something going on because he was very persmickety because all the fellow travelers like you and me who, who would show up as basically itinerant hippies, yeah. um, you know, this they're all showing up there like they show up in the City Lights bookstore in, in San Francisco. This mid-70s. The price of a bed, you could have a bed for the night for free among the books. The price of a bed was you had to read an entire book uh, in, 20, in, in 24 hours to be able to get your bed. Hey. Anybody, can I have that job? <laughs> you know, I, I was reading, uh, I used to read, I, I read like several Henry Miller in a row, which drove me 
which I think put a serious dent into my moral compass for a while. No, I, see, I disagree. I think, I think, I think Miller, you know, um, the, by the age of 25, I read every single thing Kerouac ever wrote, any single thing that Hemingway, Fitzgerald wrote, and most of Miller. Yeah. And I find Miller, just because Miller, of course, Tropic of Cancer, we had to read it because it was a dirty book. Yeah. But, but he, in a spiritual way, he wrote about sex. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Anyway, that was Paris. That was... Right. <laughs> 70s. I, 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 it's starting yeah. to sound like a Leonard Cohen song. Well, that was Paris, and that was... Uh, those were the days. But anyway, the thing is, coming back to that quote about bankruptcy, I love it. Bankruptcy happens gradually. Gradually, all, then suddenly. In other words, almost imperceptibly, and then all at once. Right. right. Now, I want to see if we can expand that for a moment to a human life. Okay. And then we can expand not only climate change, but we can expand... Um, cultural collapse or societal collapse to beyond civilizational yeah. collapse, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's just look at it in terms of a human life. Okay. That because bankruptcy is only one thing, one way of seeing a life fall right. apart. You know, like the I mean, in, in a way, alcoholism would be the same. It happens gradually and then all at once. Right. right. Um, lots of things like marriages, you know, sort of limp along uh, gradually and then very good point. And then all at once, you know, it's all over. Uh, uh, having a secret affair limps along gradually and then it's all at once. So there's lots of things in life where you tolerate, you tolerate, you deny, you lie, you smudge, and then suddenly it's all in your face. So we, we, we all know that. That's a kind of something we can, we can access from our databases. We all know the way that happens individually. Let's see how that applies, not just to climate change, but to everything that's going so on. So, you know, listening to you, I just had that insight. Do you think, I mean... Uh, in, in systems, yeah. which is what climate change is about, in systems, um, it's a different thing. But when you talk about a human life, my question to you is, is the gradual part, because um, uh, all the things you use were like, and then it blows up, right? I mean, mm -hmm. a, a romance, a marriage. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was very, it was very insightful. So the question is, I hadn't thought of it that way, um, but... Um, is that imply that when it happens gradually on, on the human self level, um, the reason it might be gradual is that it can be controlled so we don't have to pay attention to it? So then it blows up because we haven't paid attention to it? Well, certainly that we don't have to pay We don't have to pay attention to it is crucial, isn't it? Right. right. You don't the option. To, right. You don't right. have to, right? You, you can get away with not paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do then. Right. right. And so, you know, that's the thing with debt. You know? Oh, I'll just deal with it tomorrow. Yeah. Or it won't really get any bigger as than long it is as, now. As long as the credit card company is not actually at your door possessing stuff, you've got another day. And so you take the other, the other day. Yeah. And that seems to be, you know, in a way, if we think about the well-being of future generations, have you got kids and grandkids? And I, have, I have a son who's 32 and a stepson who's 25. Okay. So, you know, you have some personal interest in right. seeing a, a life for them. Right. So if we start to think beyond our own immediate kind of, you know, if we think of the Beatles song, Piggies, you know, or right. is that what Little it's called? Piggies, Little right. Piggies, yeah. If we think beyond our own immediate needs at the trough, right, mm -hmm. and we start to think of the easiest way to get beyond that is to think about future generations and children we love and grandchildren we love. So if we, if we think that like that, then it becomes in our better interest to not just think about tomorrow, but to think about 10 years or 20 years. You know? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, I don't want to go back into climate yet, but, but, but whenever I talk about climate change, and I've done it for a number of years as part of what I do, um, without question, the most concerned people in any room are the grandparents. 
Yeah. Other people could be in denial. Other people could say, oh, well, I'll deal with it, or I drive a hybrid. But the seriousness, I'm really glad you're talking about this because I'm concerned about what kind of life my grandchildren will have. Right. 100%. So it's, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, or if this, you know, educate me if, you, if there's another perspective, but it seems to me that you know, there's, there's lots of things we could call like the central problem. There's peripheral problems, like right. symptomatic, like climate right. change is a symptom, really, right? <laughs> economic yes. imbalance is a, is a symptom. What is the core problem in human consciousness which is causing all those symptoms? <coughs> we could say <laughs> that this seemingly endless tendency for human beings to go into denial and postponing until tomorrow is certainly many levels down into cause rather than symptom. Mm-hmm. Because, we don't, because we're more, more interested in switching on the AC today you know, or flying where we want to mm. fly today right. than thinking about what will... Or, or buying something from Costco in multiple layers of plastic than thinking about who's going to deal with that plastic in 100 years. Well, I mean, I think... You know, I'm an American. I was born and raised in America. So, you know, at a time when America... Where America was an empire. And, um, and so the whole West had to defeat communism by showing the opulence and the creativity and the open-endedness and the acquisition of material wealth as opposed to centralized planning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so those of us that grew up in that, I think, got into a structural framework of, um, um, you know, the exceptionalism of being American. Mm. You know, and I'm, I'm just going as an American to answer this for the moment, right? Mm. And when one thinks one is exceptional one doesn't necessarily listen to what's incoming because you don't need to, because you're exceptional. So I think as a culture and as a country, we felt we've been exceptional. And and so relative to not dealing with things uh, on a a material plane, which the planet is in part a material plane, um, we felt that, well, we're in control. Mm. We are the material, you know, one of the reasons there's climate change now is that after World War II, you know, we had to fight communism. So what did America do with the most powerful media, with the best commercials? Mm. We licensed our TV around the world. We sold our products around the world. Mm. And it was the American way of mm. life. Mm. Father knows best. Mm. Marianne, Mary Tyler Moore, whatever, whatever age you're in, you know, the, the multiple family thing that I missed. Uh, but, I mean, all this stuff... And we sold the rest of the world that this was the way to live. The American dream. The American dream. Mm. The American dream. And that's a really good use of the word, right? Because if you think you're living the American dream, you don't need to introspect. Mm. If you are in the construct of the value system and you've achieved success. So why is it that people who get really wealthy or have two real problems, they're basically unhappy, mm. and three th- problems, they're basically unhappy, they don't know who to trust because there might be after their money, and three, they're holding on to their money is making them miserable. So that's where the American dream becomes the American nightmare. Ex- right? Absolutely, yeah. right, exactly right. right. That's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, why is, <laughs> you know, that's why there's this conflict when you see, uh, you know, what's his name, right, Bhagwan Ragnish with 72 Rolls Royces. Wait a minute. 
that's in conflict to spirituality in some way. Oh, no, it isn't because we're American and we're about opulence. So, you know, there's been that deviation. Let me tell you into a, let me tell you a dirty little secret here. Sure. I don't know if I should put this on my own podcast. That guy, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, right. I lived there in Oregon. Did you, see the, did you see the documentary with the folks on the woman? I, I lived, I, I, where the documentary was made, I right. was living there the whole in the, time. In the one they built, really? Yeah, in the, well, in the 80s, I was living there, yeah. Um, I, can I ask you a question about yeah, that? Yeah, ask me anything. Um, she was, a, w w um, clearly the documentary shot it through, her, with her as the, as, as the focal point. Sheila. Right? Sheila, yeah. right. And was she, was she, was she just egocentric and into power, or was she subversive? Watch out, and buckle top for the mic. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Again? Was she what? Was she, was she just on an ego trip of control, like, I want to run this, and she used association and implied sexual relationship with Bhagwan to do that, or was she much more uh, focused on, I don't want to use the word evil, I hate to use the word, but I can't think of a better word, you know? Well, I'm going to... Manipulative. I'm, I'm going to answer that with a question. Sure. Because um, I think it's it, it's more it's it's more of a subject to look at with intelligent questioning. So the question is, I think the central question is, how much did she actually act independently, where he was? That's in, a that's a much better question. You're exactly where right. he was because she took the blame in the fall. Right. Well, so how much was she acting independently, where he was in this you know spiritual silence, and how much was she just doing his beck and call? and that he was actually the mastermind behind the whole thing. And I'm not going to try and answer that question, but I think that's the, that's central, a better that's the central question, because it opens up a bigger question, which is actually, and let's expand beyond Rajneesh, I don't want to stay there sure. too long, but it opens up a bigger question for me that has been central to a whole lot of inquiry, and it includes the question of where we're meeting right now at the Transformational Leadership Council, right. which is how much can you value and be influenced by somebody who is charismatic, eloquent, and persuasive, and how much should we also be taking into account the quiet goodness of their private life, right? So let me just elaborate on that for a moment, because I think it's actually a really super important, it's a bit, we're just going everywhere, right? So this, I think, is a really important question, and, mm -hmm. and we'll weave back to where we were, but mm -hmm. since we got into the Rajneesh thing. So, Let's just take for example. No, no, I, you're on a great thing, great okay. thing right? So let's just it's take, always the issue. Let's take for example, because this is very central to the industry that we're witnessing this right. weekend, right? So let's take, for example, the field of relationship, okay? Okay. So um, at one time, I took some instruction or some suggestion from a so-called relationship expert who'd written many books on relationship. Until after a few years of being influenced, you know, I got to witness the private dealings of this person um, with you know, their own intimate relationship, people they work with. And I realized I was witnessing an extreme psychopath, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like off the chart psychopath who was like actually very eloquent, very persuasive. Right. Um, but really, when you looked at their track record, had no business whatsoever be telling anybody anything about intimacy or relationship. Right. They, they were dishonest, lying, cheating, double-timing, everything, right? Then, I'm not going to leave that person unnamed, just to be you know, a good person, but then, more recently, I co-authored a book with John Gray, the author of Men Are From Mars, Women right. From Venus. We wrote a book called Conscious Men, and he wrote, of course, Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, the, the classic book on men and women. Now, he's got various attitudes about 
men and women, and mm -hmm. you know, it goes into biochemistry and testosterone and oxytocin. But here's the thing about John Gray. In the course of writing a book with him, I stayed many times at his house in Mill Valley. Right. And I, so I witnessed morning, noon, and night his interactions with his wife, who has sadly passed now, called okay. Bonnie. And I witnessed them in their moments of great harmony, but also in their moments of, you know, of disagreement. Right. And I saw this was a man where you got 1% of his love and goodness in his books. 99% went undocumented. This was a man who was intrinsically, who is, still is, intrinsically kind, good, well-meaning, compassionate. So having witnessed those two things, yeah, no, I realized right. like, you go into the bookstore and there's no marker on the book. Saying authentic, <laughs> right. Which author is actually living this? They're just right. two books mar marketed you know, right. in various ways. And we could extrapolate what I just said to so many things. You can extrapolate also to spirituality. Mm -hmm. You can have a very eloquent, very insightful teacher Mm -hmm. who can look you in the eye and say, you are in ego. Mm -hmm. I am enlightened. Mm -hmm. See? And it sounds like you feel nailed, like, whoa, this guy's really got it going on. The guy may be causing all kinds of havoc in his, in his own way. Yeah, no, I guess. It all it. sounds good, you know? Right. So I think this is a really important question, and this is why I was saying, you know, was Sheila a puppet or a, right. or a mouthpiece? Because the answer to that question points towards who should we be listening to? Should mm -hmm. we be listening to people who are eloquent and charismatic and able to give you a shot of some high experience, or should we actually listen to people who demonstrate intrinsic goodness and love in every area of their lives? Well, you know, as with any duality, it has some flaws in being framed that way. But I would say that um, given the two examples you used, not sociopaths, psychopaths, psychopaths, yeah. right. You know, but... You know, and this is where... And incidentally, this, just for the record, I didn't call Rajneesh a psychopath. No, no, I, no I got that. I got that. But what I'm saying is... No, the the other person you were talking about, about relationships, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the thing that has to be posited is if that psychopath was living an alternative reality to sell books, and those books positively changed people's lives, those people really don't need to worry that he was unhappy at all. In other words, uh, purity is a, is, a, is a hard, you know, things are pure. I'm pure, you're pure. But you, you come from a, well, he wasn't 100% pure in the category of relationship, so I shouldn't follow him. But if you didn't know that, if you didn't find that out, would you not have had good outcomes from his suggestion? Conversely, mm -hmm. if somebody is silent and you're not at the stage where you can handle silence or minimalism or monkism or whatever, it, you'll pass right by. So sometimes people need the door pounded mm. to be opened, mm. uh, to open the doors of perception. The door's closed. Somebody pounds you, open it up. Um, like we were talking earlier about psychedelics, and, and, and you know sometimes, you know, oh, my God, it's a rough trip. Well... Your ego got pounded, and mm. you're a better person for it. So I, you know, but that doesn't mean that the drug is good. The outcome is okay. So I don't know. I've always had that. My what came up for me when you said that is because of I'm a certain age, and I grew up in the '60s. So there's all the spirituality and all that stuff. But there's also rock and roll, and and Bob Dylan said, "Don't follow leaders and watch your parking meters," which is a parallel 
to the, the Islam phrase, uh, praise be to Allah, but remember to tie your camels, mm-hmm. right? So it's, and, and being an only child and an individual and kind of a lone wolf psychologically, um, I, you know, the Dalai Lama says, you, you have to go, in, you know, but of course, he's the head of a religion. He would say, you have to, you can't be a dilettante. You got to go all in in one practice, and I have resisted that. I've, I've I've met the Dalai Lama. I picked up from the Dalai Lama. I picked up a lot from different types of religion, different types of practices, and I've amalgamated into who I am. And you've seen me be here, and you have a sense of my beingness. And um, I'm, you know, there's this current phrase in corporate training for the last ten years: there is no I in team. Mm-hmm. And when I get that from some corporate type, because I talk to a lot of business people, I go, that's why I don't join teams. <laughs> I don't join teams, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't follow people well, mm-hmm. you know. So I understand the giving up of everything to start the spiritual journey. And I've done that with psychedelics. And I've done that with other practices. But my way or the highway, as you referred to, is, you know, you're coming from ego. Well, that's an easy thing for anybody to say. Yeah. Because if if you're not in a state, you said you're coming from ego. You use that as an example. Uh, I am enlightened, and you are coming oh, from ego. As an example, yeah. of yes, a, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. And, and and the problem with that is that is that when is that not right yeah. for somebody who's seeking? Yes, exactly. You're right. If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole radical brilliance cycle. You'll have an accountability partner and another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself, into the source of your own creativity, and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own radical brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab. Well, let's let's link back because I think we, you know, we've been we've been expanding on this this core theme right. of denial. You know, let's, right. let's let's come back to the thing about bankruptcy creeps up on you slowly and gradually, and suddenly it's all at once. Right, and and then we can suddenly. see that in a way we're witnessing that happening now, not just with climate change. We're witnessing it happening with the financial system. Everything we're witnessing in, in every way. We're seeing that we've not attended to the signs mm-hmm. for a long time. And now we can see it's right around the corner. Right. So I, I think before we go into different scenarios and how this may play out, 
I'd love to just linger a little bit on what is it about human beings that we can perhaps even learn from our own introspection that allows us to stay in self-defeating denial for so long. Even when you're... I mean, many of the people at this conference are parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. They love their kids and their grandkids. They would want, not want anything bad to happen to their kids and grandkids. And yet we go on burning oil. We go on using plastic like, it's, you know, like there's no tomorrow. We go on doing all these things, kind of unconsciously knowing I'm, somebody's going to have to deal with this later. So I think that comes, to put it on a continuum, at one end of the continuum is everything is connected. And at the other end of the continuum, it's all about the single thing. And what America, the Industrial Revolution, capitalism has done is to make the self important. And like when I talk to audiences, particularly when I talk to students, mm. meaning 18 to 23-year-olds, I'll say, you live in an economic system that has no regard for who you are, mm. has no regard for where you are in your spiritual journey. It just looks as you solely as a consumer. Yeah. That is the only way you're measured because we measure happiness right. by GDP. Mm -hmm. so, so I think I would answer that you know, once I realize that everything is one, yeah. that everything is energy yeah. and that all is connected. Mm -hmm. And when somebody says a butterfly flaps its wing, something happens in the universe. Gaia is a life entity. It's an organization. The single most complex systems humanity has ever experienced mm. is nature on planet Earth. Mm. And we think we can replicate it. And in the process of trying to replicate what is already perfect, we've, with our imperfections, destroying it. Very good point. That's actually... The core point that David, David uh, Attenborough, Su no, David Suzuki, Suzuki. Okay, David sure. Suzuki makes. You know, he's a renowned environmentalist. I, 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 I've quoted him a lot in my books. Yeah, and he, you know, his, so his just for the sake of our audience, right. you know, he, his main point is, you know, stop trying to fix it, leave it alone. You know, like actually mm -hmm. learn to revere mm -hmm. the natural cycles because every time you try and synthesize uh, something you find in nature, you're, 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 you're you're not going to be able to re reproduce its complexity. Well, and, 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 if, and, and if, you, if you look at the word history and look at the word progress, mm -hmm. the human capitalistic world, progress, if you look back at history, is already by, has always been about defeating nature. Yeah. Right? We have, we have a mountain here. We're going to put a tunnel through it. We want to build a highway here. We'll flatten out this hill. Mm. We, you know, so it's other in the in the in the belief or execution of progress. Mm. It's been counter natural mm. and, and counter nature. And so one of the things that that happens to me about that is I cannot stand. And the great environmentalists do it, and I understand they do it because they lived in the age of denial, which is over. But they say we got to. Even Leonardo DiCaprio, Bill McGibbon, they say we need to fight climate change. Mm. And, I, mm -hmm. and I first got like the fighting cancer. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you can't fight cancer. You can cure cancer. So the word I use is we all must collectively face climate change. Yeah. Right. Because fight. And accept responsibility. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a good. Can I go there? For yeah. A let's okay. Do that. So, yeah. so <clears throat> I wrote a book called This Spaceship Earth. Came out in 2015, and I wrote it with a great the most brilliant planetary ethicist I've ever met 
who believes in the interconnectedness and everything. And to boil it down to three things, starting with this, we're the first people. You know, this fight, it's us versus them, right? And, and yet we all live in a carbon economy. So the first thing we said is one of the first steps for us to be able to collectively face climate change is to give ourselves and give anybody else, fossil fuel industries, forgiveness. Because we didn't know yeah. that we were doing this. Right. Because we did it when there was a billion, we did it when there was two billion, and nothing happened. But once we crossed five and a half billion, it started impacting the planet, right? Yeah. So we um, have to forgive. You cannot have a relationship that is strong and is life-giving unless you start with forgiveness. Mm. So we have to forgive ourselves for not knowing that we were killing 150 species a day. Mm. Like, there's 150 species a day being killed, and I ask audiences, how do you feel about that? I don't feel good about it. But you have to forgive yourself because you didn't know. Because all your life you were in a growth economy that was powered by, by fossil fuels. So forgive yourself. And don't be so angry about the fossil fuels. Yeah, last 30 years they, they covered up the data, but wait a minute, you know, um, we can't fight them. We have to convert them. And the only way to convert somebody is to forgive them, mm. and then you move on. So forgiveness, it, I mean, I can look at you, and you're a high being, and you're a conscious being, and I can say, if you're an average American, you're putting 16 tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. Right. And you didn't know that, maybe until I told you. Mm. So i got to forgive you for doing that. But you had no choice, yeah. right? You had no choice. Yeah, and it's not only a matter of had. I mean, this is, I, I actually had this conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger, who you're going to hear okay. speak on, on yeah. Saturday. Daniel is, he's one of the previous guests on this podcast, and I've actually, we've got like four interviews with him scheduled. He's, mm -hmm. I, I think I wrote this book, Radical Brilliance, I just gave it to mm -hmm. you. People often Thank ask, you for your book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, people often ask me, okay, so you've done 100 and, oh, 470 interviews now over, over the last 20 years. So who was the most, and you've written this book, Radical Brilliance, who was the most brilliant person you've interviewed, and, you know, I never hesitate. It's, there's never a... There's it's no, him. Yeah, it's always Daniel Schmachtenberger. He's just... He's, God, it's, I'm looking forward to meeting it's him. Like, it's like beaming somebody down from 100 years in the future who can kind of tell us where we're going to be and where, right. where we went wrong. Anyway, the thing... I had this conversation with Daniel, and there is this, this absolutely inherent, unsolvable koan about wanting to make a difference, Okay. Because if you actually, make a difference as opposed to have a difference, well, make a difference in terms of contribute positively okay. to the future, right? Because if you really want to have zero zero footprint, you would go carbon with, footprint or human footprint. Any, if you if you really wanted to not contribute towards oh, I see. Right. climate change, plastic use, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right. you would go you know you would go deep into the wilderness somewhere if there's any left. You know, mm. you'd make a cabin out of the raw materials available to you. And you'd gather, you'd gather berries and shoot the occasional animal with your homemade bow and blah, blah, blah. And that way you would ensure you're not contributing. In the meantime, if you actually want to contribute positively towards undoing what we're doing, you end up using the Internet. You end up eating food that's in plastic wrappers. You end up getting on planes to go to conferences. And so you end up, it, it's almost impossible to avoid some degree of hypocrisy. 
because you're talking. That's why you have you know, to forgive. I mean, yeah, exactly. In, in other but words, but what I'm saying is, it's not just had to. Is that we're still doing it today? Yeah, no. We, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we 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 have to stand in the reality. Yeah. Uh, that every day we are collectively responsible yeah. for what's going on with the planet. Right. And and. So the only way is to start with forgiveness and then find out a path where we don't have to forgive ourselves because we've, of course, corrected all our activities that have come consequence. But, but, but what I'm saying is it's, imp it's actually impossible to participate at all in any, right. any of the means of communication we have right. and to right. extricate yourself. That, right? That's why we have to forgive ourselves. Yeah. We're trapped. And, and, and that's why, I'm, you know, in, in, in this book, Moving to Finite Earth Economy, you know, so he, here, here's the story, right? So we're researching mm. this, and because industrial farming is known to be is known to be uh, bad, you know, they've done metrics. What was the horrifying moment for me? Start with the it was an insight moment of almost of great horror. So I said to my researcher, I said, "Okay, so we know a quarter pound of beef puts six pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere." And we know uh, a pound, eating a quarter pound of pork puts four into. And I said, so people who don't eat meat eat fish. Let's look for fish. And we looked and we looked and we found out two things, both of which alarmed me to my core. One was, so it turns out that if you want to have an eight-ounce filet of fish brought to you in a restaurant, that is 1.72 kilos of CO2 put into the air, but that was the average of several different things that were all estimates. So number one, the horror was, the person who owned that boat that went out into the ocean, caught the fish and brought it back, absolutely can tell you how much that day of fishing cost and how much the revenue was, because they solely operate on the metrics of money, right? Capital, right? There's no way other than approximate that's carbon. So what horrified me is, we are going to move to a, we must necessarily, if we want to have civilization by 2100, move to a finite earth economy where the metric is carbon and mm. carbon use mm. or non-use. Mm. And we don't have the metrics in place. So part of mm. what, what I was writing about is here's the new metrics we have to measure against. Mm. Fortunately, and, and you know, there's been this odd low-level antagonism between people who are for nature and technology, mm. and yet it is technology that's going to help us, mm. right? Mm. Because we're going to, the, the Eurozone wants to put up a satellite next year, and it happened recently, where on a 24-hour basis, 100% of the countries, or at least significantly, the top 20 polluting companies can be measured on a daily basis. Companies or countries? Countries, sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry, countries. Yeah. Also, companies yeah. can be can be can be measured by their met by their carbon emissions, right? So there was an incident that happened three or four months ago. I'm vague on the details. My researcher got the details, and I'm remembering him telling me this: that there was a there was a bump up in methane measured in the atmosphere globally, and they couldn't figure out. It was short term, and it happened comes out of the uh, melting ice caps, partly. No, they found that two factories mm. in China mm. had not put in the controls to capture the methane. Mm. And so the Chinese government immediately shut them down, mm. right? So we're getting there. But the whole point, the, the other thing about the fish is that, is that um, you know, we, we, the core concept there is out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Action is not attached to consequence. Mm -hmm. The garbage gets picked up. 
in my neighborhood in Florida mm. every Tuesday mm. and the recycling and and then it's gone. Yeah. So my experiential conclusion is, oh, the garbage is gone. Mm -hmm. No, it just moved to another part of the spaceship mm -hmm. that I am not seeing. Yeah, but which right? you are going to sooner or later, you or your descendants will be impacted by. Yeah, I'm being impacted by it, right? Yeah. So, so, and yet, how can I not do the garbage and the recycling? Well, that's, you know, the, the journey of consciousness, whether it's consciousness, spiritual quest, or, or uh, climate change, is just take one action. Yeah. If you take an action, if, if I get somebody to recycle and I explain to them that, mm. then they're kind of go, what else can I do? I feel good about this, yeah. right? Or it's just take three deep breaths, and it's like, oh, that relaxed me. Oh, you mean there's meditation with breath? Oh, and then he takes the next step, yeah, right? Good. So, so mm. I just say to people, you know, whatever resonates with me. I have this plastic bracelet on, right? That's from Four Oceans, which means I gave them $20, and they promised to take a pound of plastic, out of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I ran into somebody last night who had one on. I said, hey, look. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bond there. But, but the point is, um, uh, I want to do more for the ocean. So, so I bought this. Other people are concerned about the polar bears or um, whatever, the yeah. habitat. So start with what you feel passionate about, and you'll quickly get to a second step. Beautiful. So I love it, that. It, it, yeah, it's really, I, love I just, thanks for having this conversation. It crystallized it in in that way, facing climate change is like the spiritual journey. So actually, let's extrapolate that out because I love where this is going. Actually, what I'm hearing is before you can forgive yourself for any of this, you have to shift from a blaming to a responsible attitude, yes. right? And this is perhaps one thing I'm noticing. You know, I, I'm, you're 60... I'm 71. 71. I'm 62, right? But I'm actually extraordinarily like unbelievably immature for my age. So I feel like I'm in my early 30s. I'm 18. Right. And <laughs> I show up as 18 and I have to check it, right? Right. So I actually, literally, I mean, in Nevada City where I live, mm -hmm. in, in the Sierra Mountains, uh, I literally, I mean, almost all my friends are around 30. I have very few friends over 40. Mm -hmm. All my friends are around 30 and I enjoy hanging out and talking. My best, my, one of my best friends is a young man named Freddie, a brilliant, brilliant mind. He's going to be a guest on the podcast soon. He's 24, and okay. you know I'll go I'll go eight hours for the river, to the mm -hmm. river with him, and talk the whole time. So I feel very kind of young, you know. And what I notice among my friends who are young, much younger than me, you know, you can talk about Trump and Biden, mm -hmm. or Trump and Kamala Harris, or Trump and something, and they'll just go, yeah, what? You know, like we've we've actually got a better world to create. Can we can we not focus on those irrelevant things? Right. right? You know realizing that actually the solution is, is as you quoted Dylan, is, is to actually just go cold turkey on leaders and realize we have collective responsibility. And we, could, we started to see that emerge a few years ago with the, you know, the kind of uh, the brief rise and fall of the focus on Occupy. And what was extraordinary about Occupy, Wall Street, but also it was localized, was you couldn't find any leaders, right? People, the, the journalists would show up to occupy demonstrations. I want to speak to your leader. There was no leader. It was a collective. It was a collective movement happening. You can say, this, see, say see the same a little bit with Black Lives Matter and with, with with many social movements where things come together because collectively people. So, hmm? I, I, you have two. You have two things I want to talk about. Um, 
the first thing started. Well, let me, let me just finish, okay. Okay, because so, I want to okay. finish tying that up. Okay. That what I'm hearing is w the beauty of not focusing too much on leaders who are going to do this for us is that we can come together and take collective responsibility. And when we can take collective responsibility, we so, are creating climate change, then we can forgive ourselves and do something so about it. So is your friend Freddie going to participate in the election? Is he going to vote? I probably, I don't know. I bet okay, it, yeah. so if he doesn't, hmm. he is not part of the solution because it's happening everywhere. You can't say, I, you know, I've always said governments are the things holding back human evolution. Hmm. So that's where I stand, hmm. right? That said, hmm. there is a consequence of, govern, of governments in the world today beyond what I like. Well, yeah. so, but, but what I'm saying is, so if somebody says, we have, you, you quoted it, you appropriated him by saying, we have bigger things to do than talk about Biden or Trump. Yeah, talk about. But still, when the election comes, you've got to be responsible, because otherwise, you've chosen. You have chosen to not participate in all the arenas that yeah. now have to be participated in. Yeah, and I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to... I'm going to play. A, I'm going to play a trump card here because I'm going to quote. Sure. I'm going to quote a brilliant man mm -hmm. who I sat on a table with at lunch today. Right. And he was contrasting: choose this or that. Right. And you've just chosen between terrible and not quite so terrible. Right. You that's know? all. That's yeah. all we've ever gotten in a democracy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. 2016 being exactly. the worst example. But, measure. But, but you see, this is what I'm trying to contrast: is you know, one aging white guy leading the country or another aging white guy leading the country may be a choice between terrible and not quite so terrible. But meanwhile, the weenus, as you've described, the weenus, the you and me and right. our friends collectively saying we can do this and we right. don't need to make one person into a charismatic leader, that's where we can take collective so, responsibility. So the reference point on that was in 2008, mm. and I was deeply into Obama. Mm. In 2008... The number one plurality, of course, was African Americans. It was 97-3. I don't know who the 3% were mm. that voted for McCain, right? Mm. The second largest plurality he had percentage-wise mm. was 18 to 24. And I always yeah, say, right. because he used the right pronoun, yes, we, we yeah. can, mm -hmm. right? So you heard me talk yesterday. Somewhere between now and January, February 2020, the millennials, born eight, eight, 1981 to 1997 in this country, and the digital natives, born 1998 to now, will be in the majority of the population. Voting population. Will be in the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. the, the, and some of them are under 18, right? Yeah. So they won't be in the majority of the electorate. But if by... And, and historically, for those that don't know, who listen to this podcast... The, the participation rates in the United States of America in, in national elections are highest over 55, and they drop down to the lowest, the youth, because the youth say, oh, I'm too busy, I don't, shouldn't do that old man stuff, right? Mm. But the point is, I keep saying when I'm on college campuses now, show up and vote, because you are in the majority, mm. right? If the Stoneham Douglas kids are an example mm. of the high level of activism in, in the digital natives, because they're all like 18 and 19, mm. then if that, if that participation of 18 to 24 can go up mm. by 2024, they can be in the, in the majority of the electorate. Yeah. So it's an active choice. Mm. And as a futurist, I'm trying to say we are at this moment mm. when there's a tidal wave of, of youth mm. all around the world, mm. and yet... The old model is youth doesn't participate. In fact, yeah. the older people have always tried to make sure that the youth 
always participated lower because the youth always have different ideas than the old people. Well, let me, so, yeah, let me yeah, ask you a sorry. question. That's okay. Let me, this is great stuff. Let me ask you a question because I, what I'm seeing is two things, okay? Two, two parallel questions. One is we're talking about whether youth participate or not in a political system that was, that was generated and, and, and solidified some time ago. Right? You're about the only two choices, participate well, well, or throw it over. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so one thing we're talking about is how much can we, can we expect or hope for young people to participate in the current democratic system? But the second question I want to ask you is, as those younger people uh, become more, come of age and, 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 and gain their confidence, can we also see not only that they make choices within the existing system, but they may actually innovate a completely different way of solving problems that, that steps beyond the, our current political process. There's no question but that that is needed, mm. and it's no question that they can do it, mm. and you always have to look to the young historically for that, mm. but the reality is you have to gain control of the controlling infrastructure to change it. Yeah. You, that's the issue. Well, it, right? unless there's some kind of revolution, yeah. Well, but, but, but you know, so uh, we're, we're in politics, and, and, and but we'll, we'll play out of it, but who were the two personalities that starting in 20... If you look back to what you knew about politicians in 2014, and you look back at 2016 now, who were the two personalities that came out of nowhere in the 2016 year? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? No, it's 2018. Oh, okay. Didn't she really? 2018. 2018. Okay, 2016. I'm not going to... Okay, not. so the answer is Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Okay. And so right. okay, yeah, as, a, as, as a futurist, yeah, if, if I'm, always asked, yeah. I'm always asked mm -hmm. to, to speak about the future. Like, who's going to win the 2016 election? I say, Martin. And I write that it's going to be a wealth inequality election, that whenever wealth inequality historically is as high as it is now, there's only two things that happen. Mm -hmm. There's either revolution mm -hmm. or populist uprising. Mm -hmm. So the two people that merged in 2016, Bernie Sanders rarely gave a speech where he didn't use the word revolution, and Trump rarely gave a speech where he didn't put out a populist message. We now know that he's lying, mm -hmm. right? So the point is, they won because they were speaking to what was the zeitgeist at the time and still is, mm -hmm. right? Bernie is declining. He can't update his message. There's other people who have his positions who are surpassing him. But nevertheless, um, you have to participate to get to the point where the Trump becomes Mayor Pete, right? I, I like Mayor Pete. For, I'm not wanting to make this politics, but Mayor Pete is of the generation that needs to take control. You cannot have somebody who's 78. There, I'm with you. Okay. There, I'm with so, you. so the yeah. point, but the yeah. point is, as a futurist, okay. I know what's coming. Yeah. And so I'm looking at these candidates mm. through the vision of what they're going to have to deal with. Right. And and aging white guys in their 70s. Mm. Remember, I talked about legacy thinking yesterday. Mm. They are completely in the 20th century in their mind construct. Absolutely. And what's about to happen, yeah. there is no construct that can deal with it. So you need somebody who right. is fresh enough and who doesn't have the legacy thinking. Absolutely. Right? The, you know, yeah. half of using Mayor Pete just as an example because he's the youngest one running, the ha half of his life has been in this century. Yeah. Everybody else, the majority has been in the other century, and there's nothing from the past that will work for what is about to happen. Absolutely. You know, it's a funny thing because remember I told you about my, that I hang out a lot with younger people. Right. And a lot of my friends, are, you know, are, most of my friends are that age. And sometimes I'll come here 
to my you know, peers my age. Right. And I'll sometimes tell people at lunch, oh, I have a lot of friends who are much younger than me. And I'll say, oh, are you mentoring them? Right? Right. And no, a, they're, they, mentoring, they got, they're mentoring me. Right. <laughs> they've got that. They've That's got one the of the problems that baby boomers have, because yeah. a lot of the people here are baby boomers. Yeah. It's all about us, right? right. We're, you know, yeah. and, and part, you know, I don't, I, I, there's no language things. Baby boom fucked it all up. Right. I own it. I'm an aging baby boomer. Yeah. That's why I'm so involved. Right. Nobody in the baby boom who, yeah. you know, who isn't still into the, the ladder of materialism. Yeah. Only those people may not think they fucked it up, but I'm sure they've been divorced two or three times and had, you know, issues. As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the brilliant cycle. This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. You can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab. Well, let's loop back for a minute. This is really great. Let's loop back to, I want to loop us back to where we got to, where you were talking about forgiveness. Right. Like, Like forgiveness, but prior to forgiveness comes the recognition that actually many people haven't reached yet, which is not just, I forgive myself but to actually realize I am actively participating in creating this problem. Not I have, but I am today. Right. Because right? you can't forgive yourself until you take responsibility. And that's what you call the kind of the we so, consciousness. So let me, I want to ask you a specific okay, question sorry. again. It's all right. So what I want to ask you is, I want to get this really pragmatic. Like what, so what can we do as sort of civilization architects, you know, which is the conversation mm-hmm. we're having, what can be done, not what can we do, but what can be done to propagate and, 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 and pour kerosene on the we consciousness, to expand and give passion to the we consciousness instead of the blaming, the blaming consciousness and the looking for a charismatic well, leader to make it okay. Yeah, I'm about ready to step into that arena, mm. and I've armored up a bit, right? Okay. So um, the answer to your question from my viewpoint, and again, you've written a book, right? I've written 11 books. 11 books. Okay. So, so you understand when a, a book is about to be birthed to the world, you're, 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 you're lost into the content of the book because it has become your creative reality, right? Yeah. So audience, forgive me for a little bit of that. 
because that's what you're going to get here, which is, which is, okay, so writing moving to a finite earth economy to answer your question when you said we. You yeah. know, you're an individual, I'm an individual. So the book three, which sets out the answers to your questions, I broke down into every level that a human is engaged in. We're engaged in the global lesson, the global level, a lot of us in the corporate level, state level, city level, neighborhood level, personal level. And at each level, there's different actions that can be taken. Mm. And the reason I wrote this trilogy is to set it all up. Book one sets the landscape. Book two sets up the new metrics and the new technologies that we have. And book three is at every level of of structural organization down to the self. Yeah. um, Here's what you can do, right? And here's what you can do. Because people go, we got to do something about climate change, and everyone's still in the fight mode, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, we got to fight it. Yeah. No, we don't. We, we got to face it, folks. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and knowing the audience I'm speaking to, mm-hmm. which is a capitalist audience, yeah. I've put in the book, I don't know, but I could give you a substantial approximate validation of this number that every day from the moment I wrote this, which is two months ago, to whenever we collectively face climate change. Every day that we don't take action is easy a billion dollars of financial loss into the global economy. So if it takes us two years to get there, that's almost a trillion dollars just on not doing, let alone the damage that nature is doing to us, right? So, so the answer is on, on, on the global level, we have to completely change. Everybody more or less in the world lives in a growth economy. So think about that. A growth economy only measures growth. And in a finite earth, how can you have infinite growth? You know, if you were to parallel that to the functioning of a human body, right. Right, the only parallel we would have in an adult human body to, uh, to, uh, to a, a growth economy in a human body would be cancer. Exactly right. right. And that's the one that's used. Yeah. Unlimited growth in the natural world is called cancer. Right. So if you want to make that leap of that metaphorical leap. Mm. We are the Earth planets. Growth economies are planet Earth's cancer. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to think about it. Right. You know? Um, so I, can I make a little extra yeah. parallel there? Sure, because, keep going. Because what, what I'm noticing is happening, you know, as I said, I, I, I hang out a lot with millennials. What I notice with a millennial entrepreneurs much more than with their forebearers, millennial entrepreneurs are often founding companies based on vision, Mm-hmm. based on social contribution, right. and then they see profit as a necessary background thing to keep going because you, otherwise the company's unsustainable. Right. But you're not... So in other words, if you think of that in terms of your body, right? you're eating food to sustain the body, but you're not going for unlimited cell reproduction. You're, you're, you're replacing cells as they die off, but there's, there's a, a balance to that. And so if we look at that with, with companies, if a company... Is is you know that you can't go in a loss for too long, but also that would dam- that would damage your com- company. But making a company all about unlimited growth, which is what has been the, the 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 dominant conversation among entrepreneurs, actually makes the company into a kind of cancer. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, Ramdas. I'm of the age that Ramdas was primary. What would be the primary? You look a little like Ramdas. I look like Ramdas just because I got bald all of a sudden. I don't know if I agree. Bald and moustache. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, um, so you know, in the '70s, I listened to practically every Ramdas tape. So he was talking about what you're talking about—the millennial um, 
should we say, conscious capitalism or right-mindedness of the endeavor. Right. And as Ramdas said, so you can go so far with that. You can hire a person, you can hire two, three people, because you're all, you know, you're, you're, you all grok the same thing, you, you have the same caress to source Vigavonica, you are, you are of the same mindset. And you hire four, and you hire five, and you hire six, and you hire seven, and then you need a good accounting person. And you need to hire a good accounting person, but there's nobody who's of the mindfulness and state of being that you are. So what do you do? You hire a good accountant. And at that moment in time, you have changed the mindfulness of the company. So you're at the fork in the road. Do I become a company that's not as mindful as I'd like it to be? Or And that's where, where I talk to corporations. You know, I do lots of uh, Fortune 500 retreats and stuff like that, um, is, is you have to... You, you, you have to create a corporate culture that's self-sustaining, driven by those that are of it, not over it, and let that happen. So you have to compensate for the fact that you had to take a business step that all of a sudden lowered, didn't expand the collective mindfulness of it to create another culture. And that's where I think, you know, whenever a company says they have trouble retaining people or trouble hiring people, I always say, tell me about your culture, Mm -hmm. right? Because we have so far passed the mindfulness of corporations that we have to go back in and create culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I always say, if you're going to create a culture, speak largely to CEOs, you're going to create a culture, ask everybody. The example I'll use is uh, 100 people, right? So you've got 100 people working for you. And you've got a lot of millennials, and as you said, millennials want to make a difference. They want to change the world. They want to participate. They want their life to be of value and significance relative to the common good mm-hmm. more than the baby booms, boomers did, right? So you, you, you've got to say, you just say to 100 members, say, I want you to write down the three things that you think um, humanity is most urgent to face in the world. And, of course, I'll say, okay, so 47 of them put climate change first and... 17 of them put it second, so that wins. So at that moment, what do you do, CEO? says, well, I, 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 um, I organize them. I go, no. You kind of go, so who wants to run our climate change practice? And a lot of those 47 hands will go up. Step back. Let them do it. Let them do it. No control, because they will do it better than you, because it's their idea. Co-authorship is so important to changing the world. Yeah. Right? Google has gone... Google is the company I know that's gone furthest in that way with their 20% policy. Right. Um, I would say that there is... Well, this is another conversation. I'd say there's a step before that, Mm -hmm. because there's a gap between people having high values and good ideas and then having the sustained consciousness to be able to right. carry that through and move it right. through. I mean, That's what radical brilliance is about, by the okay, way. Okay, well, yeah. well, good, good. Yeah. I mean, being an entrepreneur is basically signing up for not having space to do much of anything else, yeah. right? I mean, if you really, I mean, you, anybody who works a job and says, oh, I'd like to be rich, mm. doesn't know that most of the people I know who, while they were getting rich, mm. were working 100-hour weeks, right? Yeah. So my question, oh, so you really, you know, there's a great guy in the 60s, you're probably too young, whose name was Bernie Kornfeld. Bernie Kornfeld ended up in jail, right? Bernie Kornfeld sold mutual funds, and he realized if he went over to Switzerland and set up an account there, he could sell something called a fund of funds, 
which would be tacking on percent. And he wanted to hire the best salespeople in the world. No, so, so I read this book as I was learning to become a salesman in the advertising industry. So anything about great sales I wanted to consume, right? And his question, his last question, after he had a sense of them, after he knew their CV, everything else, he says, do you sincerely want to be rich? Yes. Which basically translated into, you're going to work all the time, get on planes when I tell you to get on planes, go through brick walls when I tell you to go through brick walls. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so the acquisition, I think one of the reasons that there's so many unhappy people who are rich is they had to go all in on attaining the rich. So whatever was that childhood dream, whatever was that creative as a child, whatever was the insight you once had when you were in church, whatever was the palmness you fed in meditation, all of that stuff got crushed because you were obsessed. So, you know, I have to look at somebody like that and forgive them because they got caught up and lost in a model that's got to go away. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. Okay, well, let's loop back in uh, to, sure. to let's let's loop back into talking about we consciousness. Okay, we were talking about how how can clearly it was the abdication of responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, the turning to not only charismatic leaders but sort of also where the opposite is people being adamantly against somebody or against something and rallying mm-hmm. hatred in that way. So that's really what got us into this yes. in many ways. And it, it's really what, what propagates warfare of various kinds. Right. And I think we've been talking about the, the, really the, the golden future rests in we consciousness. So what is the best way to... One way I think you've already, you've already uh, isolated is one way to, to usher in we consciousness is education. If people can see... Now, with, with massive connectivity of information, if people can see the consequences of their use of garbage or recycling, if they can see how it hooks up to, right. to, to, to where that's going to be, uh, where that's gonna, what that's going to lead to, that's going to increase to, that's going to lead to immediate increased awareness of actions. Absolutely. And, but but you, have, you always kind of have to take a sense, uh, you have to get a sense of what caused the problem. Mm. So, uh, you know, to use your phrase, I think it's a great phrase, we consciousness is about ready to happen at the largest scale it has ever happened in history mm. because we have to let go of the individual mm. self with the, um, with the siloed, my consequences, I don't know, but it's all about me. Mm. You know, so what has happened up to the 21st century has been the domination of religion, nation states, and commerce, right? Mm-hmm. So religion is always about you're one of us, not one of them. How can you have a we consciousness with that? Um, number two is the nation state. You're of citizenry of this nation, not that, right? And the third one is since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the 1790s, the value of a human is about their individualness. So, so there's been this whole Western... Um, promotion of the rugged individual or individual self or the self and all that and to some degree that is a consequence of if I, if I the industrial 
material complex, military complex, I, the industrial revolution, I, growth economies, I, capitalism. If I can segment anybody into an individual, I can convert them into consuming because consuming is only action that will help grow an economy. Mm. So we need to make everybody feel, first and foremost, like they're an individual consumer. And so all of us, it's good to the forgiveness point, all of us have been programmed that. I want that. I want that. We aren't raised to see we need that or we need to make that happen, mm. right? So the moment of right now where, where the way I describe it is the silver lining of climate change in 2019 is that it is happening now. The age of denial is gone. Yeah, there's some people who believe the, word, the earth is flat too. I want to spend our time with it, right? Mm-hmm. We know. We know. Turn on the news any given night, and you will see a climate change story, yeah. right? So the point is fight and flight kicks in, right? Since caveman, where we had a collective close to the ground consciousness, was fight or flight. Do we fight the line or run? Let's go back, you know, that's a million years old. We don't have what has happened with climate change, which is, you know, I'm talking to somebody in Earth Day number seven in 1970, number one, and I would say, you know, in several decades, we're going to have a real, oh, okay, I'll deal with it in several decades, right? So, so now that it's happening, we have to react, and it, and from a consciousness point of view, you know, people who know history or who are older know that we went in, six, in 90 days from making cars, 90 days after Pearl Harbor, from making cars to making tra- tanks in the same building, right? So a common enemy mobilizes a collective consciousness. Well, right now, 150 species a day are becoming extinct, which means that every living thing that you and I can look out here, these, these eucalyptus trees and and unfortunately a golf course, um, are, um, I say that just because it's a horrible drain on water and people are, star- are dying of thirst, is, is, um, is everything is happening at once. And so we have to show up at once. And every living thing has the same common enemy, the growth economies in which humanity fully lives. Mm-hmm. We can't... Here's a statistic I really feel I have to say, because um, when I wrote the Spaceship Earth, one thing, the three things were the cause of climate change was siloed thinking. The second contribution we made is we all have to stand in forgiveness because we didn't know we were doing this. Now we do. So what you gonna do, right? And uh, the third is that when I sat down with Tim for the very first time, Tim Rummage, my co-author, we were talking about writing a book. I said, I have two questions for you. Question one, what's the cause of climate change? He said, solid thinking. I said, what happens if we go to zero carbon emissions right tonight at midnight? He says, the planet will still warm for two to three decades. I said, explain that to me. I don't understand that. And that was the science that we brought in our book that was new to the world, which is called resident CO2. So we're putting up, we, humanity, is putting up 38 gigatons of carbon into the world. Well, the, the warming of the planet started, as I talked about, in 1970. In 1970, 1980, is when, we, when our atmosphere went from 800 gigatons. It was 730 pre-industrial age. So the Industrial Revolution up to 1970s put 70 gigatons in it, right? So it went from 1970 at 800 to 2019 
at 1300, which is 100% time congruent with the warming of the planet and 100% congruent with everything that is now happening, right? So, so the issue is we have just begun a 30-year to 200-year cycle that if we want to if we want to revitalize the earth back to where it was before the Industrial Revolution, it's going to take us through the 22nd century. If we want to have our grandchildren to live in what is remotely called civilization by 2100, we have to get to a finite earth economy by 2030. So the, the consequence of the future of civilization is what is at stake right here, right now. And if humanity cannot come to a we consciousness, mm. then the epitaph on our species will be they couldn't step outside them, themselves. Exactly. You know, and, I, and I'm contemplating because you've, you've just, in what you were saying, you just highlighted that it is actually active participation in the consumption machine. Right. It's your active participation in the need to consume that keeps it going. So what I'm realizing is for myself, and I'm not saying I'm, you know, any different from anybody else. But what has, what has actually helped me to 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 start to pull my foot out of that right. swamp, has actually been. It sounds, it sounds. I'm embarrassed. No, 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 I'm embarrassed kidding. to say it because it sounds platitudinous. But no. what has actually really made the biggest difference is the passionate, deep, real practice of gratitude. Absolutely. Okay? Because. Well, that's that will be a path for a lot of people. So. And I'm not just talking about you know every now and then. I mean really developing an attitude, moment to moment, of of over of allowing yourself to be overwhelmed with awe and amazement at the richness of this moment. Right. Because if I'm, I mean, if I just stop to savor this moment, like wow, I'm sitting on this concrete slab here with David Hall. He's one of the most interesting people I. I've met in right, decades. No, it's great, man. This right, is the, right. Let me let me have my moment here. This, right. this, okay. is, this is incredible. We've got all this equipment, like which which was, I mean, rather than thinking about oh, I could have a better microphone, but think about wow. I mean, I mean, twenty years ago you couldn't have done this. None of this. None right. of this. Right. None of this was possible to my great grandparents. This is an absolute miracle. How exactly are you going to capture this? And what's a podcast? Yeah, yeah, what? What's you know? a microphone? Right. So this this whole thing is so incredible, so amazing. I don't need any more. You see, I don't need any more. That's and, the key. And and that enough is enough. Right. So I try. So what, what I realize is, you see, when I go to the supermarket, or in our case, it's the it's the it's the food co-op. We're lucky enough to have a food right. co-op, you know, which is locally owned and locally operated. You know, I can, I can be, oh, I want, I want, I want. I can go, wow, that's an apple. <laughs> How amazing. That's an apple that somebody grew in a local orchard right. and they carefully brought it for my consumption. If I can actually be brought to tears by the magnificence and the miracle of this apple being delivered to You'll me. You'll spend for the rest of your life in the produce section. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like the need for, you know, the, the latest, you know, the... the yeah, the perfect, it. you know, th three Michelin star. It goes right. away because just a simple thing fills you with gratitude. Absolutely, and I and I think, you know, what came to mind while you were talking about that is a negative s description of environmentalists have been, oh, that person's a tree hugger, right? Mm. And if you think about standing in deep gratitude, 
I have many times, and you have, whether you were in some meditative state or some other state, hugged a tree because of the magnificence of the tree, and you get to hug something that many times is much older than you are mm. and has been around for much longer than you have, and, and they have roots in the ground that you're standing on, and if you hug, make that hug, I'm closing my eyes to go back to it, that, that, that you have gratitude, and then it gets encapsulated by the growth that comes, oh, that person's just a tree hugger. Yeah. It's like the person who says that has absolutely zero sense of, of gratitude. Well, I guess the key is to make your gratitude absolutely unconditional, because if you, if you bring gratitude and amazement and awe to everything mm. unconditionally, you're not going to alienate people. Yeah, I mean, so, so maybe you can help me here. That, the problem I have with that is I can't be, I can forgive, but I can't be absolutely grateful f for how the fossil fuel industry has conducted themselves over the last half century. Right. So, I mean, yeah. so, so help me out there. How can I... How, the, the only gratitude there is somewhat of a, of a logistical pretzel, which is, well, I can be gratitude because now climate change is happening now, so people respond. Yeah. But I just can't... Well, so so how, how, would I, how would I feel gratitude well, about something well, like that? What I was specifically wanting to highlight yeah. is how can I antidote my addiction to more, which in me is one little cog in the massive machine of addiction to more that right. creates the global economy. And the way that I can antidote my, my addiction to more is by tuning into what's being given to me in this moment. Now, let me, let me just... Okay, uh, let me, okay. Let me answer that thing for a minute, because let's talk about the fossil fuel industry. I mean, given being that I'm a futurist, I have to live yeah, in no, past can, and future, let, let unfortunately. Answer, let me right? answer your question, and I'll answer sure. your question, and then give it, and give it a parallel as well. Okay. So, so I, no, it's not a matter of being grateful for the fossil fuel industry, or being grateful to Chevron or something. But what are the moments where I might be upset with Chevron or angry with Chevron? You know, I don't know what it would be. Like, probably it's going to, for me, it's going to be when I flip through the news on my phone and see something evil that Chevron's done or whatever. So right. I don't want to, right, right, I, don't right, know, right. I don't know which is the most evil, but, you know, or the pharmaceutical or whatever and go, oh, these terrible people. Right. But that's a moment where I could look up from whatever device is distracting me from and, and realize, oh, I have connection with you sitting next yeah. to me. Or, so here's something so, real that so I can... Well, re so reapply attention. Well, hang on. Yes, exactly. But let me just finish this okay, thing a minute. Sorry. Because, because that's one thing is, is I've noticed when I reapply my attention, as you put it, to what's immediately around me, like in this moment, to really relish right. the connection with David Hall. Like, what an incredible thing. You know, right. one day you're going to die. And then I'll... I'll remember, yeah, right. I'll remember this incredible meeting we right. had. You know, gosh, I remember that. What guy. makes you think I'm going to die? Well, I don't know. It's just a <laughs> premonition. Uh, but, but equally, you know, what I see is this applies also to the way that all of us just get... I mean, I picked my wife up from the airport on Monday night, right? She'd been away for two months, which was fine. She was, teach she was doing her thing. She was magnificently doing her thing. Teach she's a very popular teacher. She was doing her thing in, in Greece and Germany and being very successful, and I was writing a novel and other books here. But I picked her up from the airport Monday night. Like, what a reunion. You know, we hug. I brought rose petals to the airport, you know, sprayed her with rose water. We, we did the whole, like, you know, the most, mag most magnificent homecoming. We get in the car. We start driving. How was it? How was Greece? Oh, I love you so much. And lo and behold, as is predictable, you know, 40, 40 minutes into the trip, I live quite away from the airport, Trump gets in the car with us. And now we're Trump bashing. On the radio. No, oh, you mean just conversation? No, just conversation. Right. And I had to say to her, I said, sweetheart, do we really want 
to on our reunion right. trip home from the airport, do we really want to bring Trump in the carpet? That's the problem. And, and we realize no. So that's reapplying attention. Okay, see, got it. You know, got so it. Right. actually, you know, instead of knocking politicians, I have you, only one con. Uh, I have one self, and I have one sense of attention, and it's up to me to constantly redirect so I can stay in gratitude. Is that, that what you're saying? Well, I kind of, yeah, but it's also I see politically. Oh, politically uh, without question. Uh, as, what you, as you said at lunch, we get presented with two fairly undesirable choices, and we're right. asked to pick a team and cheer for them. But so, I don't yeah. want to cheer for either of those teams. I, so, want, to, I want to cheer for weeners. I want to cheer so, for younger people who can co create environments where it's a we, not us against them. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy dropping by RadicalBrilliance.com. We've got an ebook for you which explains the Radical Brilliance cycle, the way the cycle gets blocked, and the practices that best open up the cycle again. We also have five days of gifts and insights for you, delivered every day by email and video, which go much more deeply into the phases of the cycle, the ways that the cycle can become a kind of diagnosis of blocked brilliance, and a way to accurately find the right practice for each person. In addition, you'll receive a video about the single most important practice that we have determined affects brilliance, and another video about everyone's favorite topic, brilliant sex. It's all totally free, prepared for you as our guest. Please come to RadicalBrilliance.com. Register on the homepage and you'll receive the ebook right away. Then you'll be guided through the five days of videos to take you deeper into your own radical brilliance. So, how do we change the system? So, I'm at a stage of, I'm a stage of life, a level of respect because of what I do globally. Uh, that I set up a 21st century think tank called the Sarasota Institute. And we picked 10 things that um, we felt were places where the big questions had to be framed mm. and collectively answered. Mm. You know, like climate change, technology, democracy mm. was one of them. Mm. So uh, Jason Apollo Voss, one of my two co-founders, and I wrote a white paper. And in the democracy thing, what did you just say? two people, right? So we suggested not that it be put into place, but that it should be discussed to put into place the following two changes to the American democracy. Mm -hmm. Number one, mm -hmm. usually it's a binary choice. Mm -hmm. The least desirable gets, you know, um, there should be a third the choice. The least undesirable. Least wins. undesirable, sorry. The least so, undesirable so, wins, yeah. In this, in this country, it's Democrat, Republican. And what we're saying is always have none of the above. So if you don't like one and you don't like two, you write none of the above. And if none well, of the above... hopefully there's a third person in none of no, the no, above. No, no, but hold on. Even if there's not. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, if it's a third or there's ten, right? Yeah. 
however many, there's that's always nine of them both. Yeah. Mm, some yes, no, some, no, yeah. that, that, that's, that's too simple. Well, there too are a simplified. lot of coalitions in I'm, Europe, yeah. I, I'm assuming that the majority of the listeners here are Americans, all right? No, not necessarily. Okay, Maybe. I don't know where their countries, but... It's a, it's a free world. Anyone can listen to this. Yeah, no, I understand. But what I'm saying is I'll use America because I'm American and I know the political history code. It's a free internet code. anyway, yeah. Right, so the, so, so the point is, number one, mm. add none of the above. I've taken this to audiences. Well, what happens if none of the above wins? Yeah. I go, then the two people, the two entities, in this case, Democrat and Republican, have to give us candidates until one of them wins. Because what is an election? Yeah. An election is a job interview. And I asked this of any businessman. I said, if you hire two people for a job mm. and you didn't like either one, mm. would you pick one of them? Of mm. course not. Mm. Well, why we let people run our government that way? Yeah. So it's, but the second thing I got to want to say is that, is that um, in the United States, president and vice president, each selected from a party, they run against each other. And what does it cause? And why did you mention Trump? Because of the polarization and the anger, right? Mm -hmm. And how does polarization and anger occur? Because you demonize the other person, yeah. right? Crooked Hillary in the case of Trump, right? Yeah. What we're suggesting to be considered is that, the de in this case, the Democrat and Republican Party put up only a candidate for president. And the one that wins becomes president, and the one that loses becomes vice president. <laughs> and what will immediately happen is they can't possibly attack each other. Yeah. They have to argue to the people who's going to be the better <laughs> person to be on top. Yeah. And the conversation is about what I'm going to do mm. and why I'm the better person. Mm. At the same time, knowing that whether you win or not, you're going to have to work with this person. To me, those two things to be discussed, which is why I'm bringing it up in this podcast, uh, you know, I hope people give you feedback because I'd love to hear it on this, is very simply, um, why not try that? Because you cannot say the current system is working. So whenever, you know, um, there's one of the, one of the concepts of a, of a country in decline is when the institutions no longer work, they no longer serve the greatest amount of the citizens. And you can definitely say that's happened in the United States of America in practically every country around the world right, right now. Yeah. So, so if something is not working, you have to embrace trying something that might. And if it doesn't, at least it's, you, if you're starting from a bad place, you have to experiment to get to a better place. Yeah. Well, you know, I think like you, I think where you and I our peas in a pod, yeah. is some things happen to both of us, and it'd be interesting someday, maybe not, we don't have time now, but someday it'd be interesting to find out for you and for me, what specifically what, was it, what was the turning point that made us so passionate about this? Because we're, we're at an age where some people retire and go and, you know, just lay in the hammock or play golf or something, but we're, we're both obviously on fire, talking, right. thinking about the future, right? And I had my own trajectory around that, but let's, let's leave that aside. But the thing is, We've both got this deep caring, right, about... And so when I think about that, I definitely, want a, I definitely want the best possible future, the best possible future that we can cultivate, and I want to take the most immediate steps to create that. But here's the thing for me. Personally, I have given up any faith in elected government to play any significant role in that. Let me, let me hear me out for a minute, okay? In other words, we can vote for this one or that one. I don't. It, they're, they're both, they're, it's all so polarized. I just don't see that as particularly 
I mean, it's got to happen, yes. We have to have elections, but I don't see that's particularly significant. I don't put very much faith in religion, which is what we've done in the past. You know, I don't believe that if we convert everybody to a certain religion, that's going to solve the problem. Never has, never yeah. will. Yeah. I also don't put much faith in NGOs because, nonprofit organizations, because there's often so much red tape. I'll tell you where I put my faith, okay? I put my faith in socially conscious entrepreneurs, mostly under 40. And when I, when I meet with people who so, socially conscious entrepreneurs, in other words, people... Certainly in the United States, that's a real... And in Europe, yeah. Yeah, so, not quite so, as much, but yeah. yeah. But social, people founding businesses for the common good, which then make a profit as a byproduct, if I feel we can fuel that, right. we've actually got a chance of making a better world. Well, I think there's a lot of money people who agree with you and are giving money to that. I just think that, um, again, because I am a futurist... I am a target, mm -hmm. in a good way and a bad way. Yeah. So I've, I've had a lot of incoming. And I agree with what you just said 100%. So I get people that, after they've heard me talk, they know it's about consciousness to some degree. And they'll come up and they'll say, I'd like you to be on my board because here's what I want to do. And I'll stay with them long enough. And some of them show up that way, and some of them know that's the new pitch to get money, but I still want to make a lot of money. Yeah. So there's still that discernment yeah. because it's now the new thing. Yeah. And I have gotten seduced. I, went on, I was on a board of, of one tech company, and I thought it was a, a brilliant idea, and, and he said he was going to go this way, and then he wanted me on because I was a future, so he could say this is the tech of the future, right? And, I, and, I, and I, it was a way to secure secure. Uh, finances on the internet and then he wanted to take it another way because it had a prior, higher profit margin and both myself and a couple of the board members said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute you just changed the vision and you said it was about the vision, yeah but I need to make a living, I've been doing this for a yeah. long time, I need to change and at that point in time I resigned from yeah, the board yeah. so, so, it's a very common story yeah. uh, and I think you know, one solution to that is that you don't support people who you meet at a conference. You support people who you know. I met you at a conference. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so, this is truly an exception. Yeah, but I'm not asking you to be on my board. I'm no, saying, no. I'm saying I, I see that people who do this well, mm -hmm. they support people they've been in a relationship for 10 years. You know, and you, so you really know that person. Right. You know their essential goodness. That's true. And I'm starting to suspect your essential goodness, but I want to go on a few dates before I actually <laughs> get on your board, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, you know, the reason I do it at my age is that you heard a little bit of my story at lunch, but basically, I always did thing. We're outside, guys. So sorry about that. I always, the I always did the, I always did the what the, turned out to be the next big thing, and it wasn't until this century, mm. 2004, 2005, that I realized my highest value mm. to me, mm. to quote the planet, and to anybody that I could talk to about the future who had an interest in the future was to be right about the future, because I was right about the future people would listen to me. And the point is, I'm the only futurist who's on my website has, I got to update them, I'm doing a new website update, what I forecast and when I forecast it. Because I've got to be, a, that's my highest value. Mm -hmm. Because people are concerned about the future. So the reason I keep working is until, until we are in a we consciousness and we, carbon's going down, everything else, I, I have to keep giving my highest value. You know, I, no matter what I do, this is my highest value. My carbon footprint is not great, mm. right? Because I have to get on planes. Mm. And what reality, do you drive? What? What do you drive? I can't drive to Shanghai. No, what do you drive? What do you drive? Oh, I drive uh, uh, a Hyundai Elantra 
that gets 38 miles to the gallon it's on the gas highway. It's yeah, gas. it's all gas because I bought it. It's paid for. Mm-hmm. It's only got 38,000 miles. Mm-hmm. And to go buy a Tesla, which I don't want to spend that much money on mm-hmm. at this stage of my life, I, I'd have to create a whole new drain on the planet. Yeah. So it's better. It's better. Fair enough. If yeah. I don't, if, if I drove a lot, it's a different thing. I drove, drive yeah. five or six thousand miles. We just got a. Year. We just got a Subaru plug-in hybrid. We that's actually, great. We Good were, for you. That's we were, why you asked the question. You want to be no, able to no, say no, that. No, 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 no. That's not true. That's right. It's fine. Plug-in Subaru hybrid. Good car to buy. Well, you know, we were up for a new car anyway. Well, that's the good and reason. That's, that's actually, it's a good way to go. If, you, because if you're up for a new car and you don't buy an EV, you got to check, you got to look in the mirror and say, am I really green or am I just talking the talk? Yeah. I want to I kind of wind up today, sure. David, with, with a, a, a question because I know that you, you pride yourself as a futurist on the accuracy of your predictions. Yes. But I'm going to ask you, to wind up our conversation today, I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to ask you to put accuracy aside, sure. and I'm going to ask you to put on instead of your accuracy cap, your optimism cap. And what I want to ask you is, never mind if it's accurate. I want to ask you, as a futurist, what is the best possible future that you can dream for us? Like, if if we all made the best possible choices, what is the future we could be creating? It's so clear vision. Mm-hmm. We're in 2019. Mm. There isn't any current research about what is happening to Spaceship Earth Mm. that does not say by 2030 or we may not have civilization by the end of the century. So that's the premise of the moment. And so, therefore, the most beautiful, Mm. attainable Mm. future Mm. is to have the we consciousness to come together to use the fact that we have to globally connect on a consciousness level to face the one thing we have to face, which is how we live on this planet. Mm. So that by 2030, we are at 30% fossil fuels globally. The books I've been writing are set the path and the direction and the pathway to that. But the beauty is we have to do that because if we do that, that is relative to all the consciousness and the we we're talking about, it's the only way that humanity can ever get to a collective we consciousness because we did something. And humanity has never, all of us, or the majority of us to bring those that are passive along, done something collectively to save ourselves from ourselves. That's what climate change is. If we can't save ourselves from ourselves, we deserve to go to, ex- we deserve extinction. I don't think extinction, if the, 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 the three paths to the 20, 2100 is one, the catastrophic path. That's what we're on, which means that, that there won't be civilization. Civilization will largely break up 2050 to 2075. So when we came into the century in 2000, we said, um, oh, by 2100, we need to be fossil, fuel, fossil free, right? And then we got a little more feedback from the planet. So around 2012, 2013, we need to do it by 2050, right? And now, you know, I've been saying for five years and you know, United Nations agreed last October, mm-hmm. we need to make significant, massive changes in direction by 2030. 2030 so yeah. the catastrophic future is thinking we have until the end of the century. The high-risk path is thinking 2050. So you'll see all this language about 2050. And the, the only possible successful path is to aim for 2030. Okay. But the beauty of that is if we do that, folks, mm-hmm. what's going to happen 
is that we're going to have the collective consciousness that's been written about, prayed about, mm. envisioned mm. for centuries. And tell me about that. Um, well, um, the collective consciousness. Um, uh, a left brain way to talk about it is, um, you know, Tarhadi de Chardin wrote about 100 years ago the phenomenon of man. Mm. And he said, and he was a Jesuit monk. And yet he got outside his religion enough to say, man is moving towards, uh, is evolutionarily moving towards a collective consciousness, which I'm going to call the new sphere, N O O sphere. Mm. And I took that because I'm now in the synaptic internet age and called it neurosphere. Mm -hmm. So everybody who's listening to this podcast who's connected has experienced this kind of pulsating synaptic thing called the neurosphere. Mm. Every, everything of the brain has now been uploaded. Things are happening. The critical mass is increasing. We're getting ever more connected. The, all the data I showed you, right? And, and, and the point is that is the technological model, what is going on right here, right now, for what the human consciousness will be. So we always looked at technology to see how it might be, right? And, and, yet, and yet, that's what it's going to be. So th the problems I want to have to deal with that I'm not evolved enough to answer is when we get to a collective consciousness, you know, think about that. That means we're all connected on a telepathic way. How do we deal with that? You know, we have major problems. How do you deal with cell phones so you're not addicted to it? You've got to put it down and walk away. What happens if it's coming directly into the brain? That's the only problem I see with this, and boy, do I want to have that problem solved. Got it. So let me just ask you to kind of condense Sorry, that. Sorry, okay. Yeah. What's the best? Just, let's just do it like a few sentences, like what is the best possible? Like, as a futurist, what is the highest outcome you can imagine? Um, a human... What are we capable of? What's our highest we're, we're, potential? We're, capa we're capable of accelerating human evolution in the next 30 years. And that's what I. And what, will that, what would that look like? It would. It would look like. So, uh, uh, the backstory is that uh, Darwin said in the last five thousand years before he wrote the book, there was an acceleration of of evolution because of the creation of culture and civilization and laws and money and all that. And it's since been said that since 1859 to now, 170 years, we've replicated that five thousand. Mm -hmm. So, what I truly, with my demanding on myself to be accurate if we can successfully navigate and collectively face consciousness mm -hmm. I mean climate change by, 23, by 2050 mm -hmm. we will be there mm -hmm. and what will that look like what, 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 if humanity it will, look, it will look like something that's unimaginable right. How, you know, when you talk about mm. enlightenment you know, what, is, what is the phrase about enlightenment it's beyond words right okay. so if we collect it why do we need words because you're being and I'm a being, mm -hmm. i got to talk to you. Mm. If we didn't have to talk, mm -hmm. I just had to look at you mm. and I get your thoughts, okay. Mm. Um, so then words which we need to verbally communicate with are no longer relevant to that. So I can't, in words, it's just like, oh, David, describe enlightenment to me. Right. You have to say it's beyond words, right? So, what so, this, so a way to end that yeah. is that is a state of collective enlightenment. Got it. How about that? Beautiful. So the highest potential for humanity is a collective as we as we go from the five thousand year evolution that happened since civilization, 
Then the evolution has happened since the Industrial Revolution. The, evo the next evolution is possible in a couple of decades mm -hmm. is an evolution into weeness, oneness, and collective enlightenment. Well said. Cool. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I've never said that before. Well, I so just, that's I'm the just, beauty I'm of just, the conversation. Yeah. So did you hear that? That's why this guy is good, because I just said something that I probably will say a hundred times in the next year, <laughs> right, that I hadn't thought of. So thank you for that. David, thank you so much. Thank it's been you. really a pleasure, and I really uh, I feel very honored to have your expertise. I'm, and I'm so happy to have done this. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Hall. He's a um, complex, rich mind. Um, I found him to be extremely provocative and inspiring. I'm going to ask you to do a little practice now to shift from being a consumer <clears throat> by listening to being a proactive co-creator by bringing something of your own into, into expression. So I'm going to ask you to reflect upon this conversation you heard and to consider what is the future you would most like to create. And I suggest you do this either by talking with a friend or by journaling in a, in a notebook with a pen. What is the future you would most like to create? If you think about your children and your grandchildren, what would you like them to experience maybe in 100 years? And of course, there may be a part of you, a voice within your head that says, well, that may not be 100 years. But on the other hand, let's imagine, um, what would it take? What would, how would we need to behave? How would we need to behave with each other and communicate with each other for there to be a 100-year future? Take a little time now to reflect upon that. It might be good to go out for dinner with a friend and just to really drill deep into this possibility of a 100-year future. Wishing you all the best. I'll see you in our next, our next podcast.